Good to worship our God together this morning. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at The Landing, and I am so excited to be digging into Genesis 39 with you all this morning. Several months ago, our youth went on a retreat, and we went through the story of Joseph in Genesis, and so it's been such a blessing for me to be able to dig into these chapters, and I pray it is a blessing for you as well. I don't think it's any coincidence that we are in this chapter this week. If you're on the church email list, you've seen lots of urgent prayer requests come in day after day. People with serious health concerns, people walking through painful trials, calling out saying, I need to be lifted up in prayer. And praise God, we are a praying church. And I believe God has us in this passage, as he always does, at the right time. A passage filled with great suffering and great hope. And so I pray that it is God uses it to comfort and encourage and strengthen those who are suffering. So let's pray once more and ask God to do that this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. No one here needs to hear from me. We desperately need to hear from you. So would you speak through your word? Would you bind up the brokenhearted? Would you help us to leave here with joy and hope renewed in Christ for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Genesis 39, which Tom just read, we see what happens to Joseph after he's taken down to Egypt. Earlier in chapter 37, we're told that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. They hated Joseph because he was their father's favorite and because God gave Joseph these prophetic dreams that pictured Joseph being raised up and them bowing down to him and no brother likes that, and so they decided to sell him into slavery, which is not what you should do. But, by God's grace, God is over all these things, and he is bringing Joseph down to Egypt, even though his brothers cover it up by taking their brother's coat, dipping it in goat's blood, and presenting it to their father. And their father says, well, he must have been eaten by a wild animal. And Jacob says that he's going to go down to Sheol in mourning while Joseph is going down to Egypt. And that's where chapter 39 then picks up. Today, it's very common for many people to see the main point of Genesis 39 as a call to work hard and do what's right. Work hard and do what's right. It's often summarized something like this. Joseph worked hard and he did what was right even though things were hard. He picked himself up, didn't have a pity party, and he got to work wherever he was. No matter how many bumps in the road there were or how bleak the situation was, he kept working hard and did what was right. And eventually, it rewarded him because he became the second in command later in the story. So if you work hard and do the right thing, eventually it will pay off, just like it did for Joseph. Now, I'm sure Joseph worked hard and clearly he did what was right in this chapter. Praise God, he did what was right. And I hope we become more like Joseph. I hope I become more like Joseph, that we would work hard and that we would do what's right no matter the cost. But there is something so much better in this chapter that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see. Four times in this chapter he says, The Lord was with Joseph. Four times. It bookends the whole chapter. You see it in verses 2 and 3, and you see it in verses 21 and 23. No matter what happens, the Lord was with Joseph. That's the main point of this chapter. God, by his Holy Spirit, is with Joseph through 
everything. Later in chapter 41, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, even pagan Pharaoh says in verse 38, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? He's speaking better than he knows. That's what Joseph, that's what makes him great. God is with him. That's what makes Joseph great. God is with him. It's what carries Joseph through every trial in this chapter. And God, by his Spirit, dwells in every believer. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? That's amazing. God dwells in you. If you're trusting in Christ this morning, that's one of the bedrock foundational realities that you build your life on. God is with you. What could be better than having God with you? Christian, God, by his Holy Spirit, is dwelling in you. He's leading you in all truth, John 16, 13. He's pouring the love of God into your heart, Romans 5, 5. He's helping you see the glory of Christ and become more like him, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and 10,000 more things. One of the deepest comforts you have in the hospital room is that God is with you. God is with you. Your assurance of salvation is that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and producing fruit in your life. God is with you is an anchor you run to when you're battling anxiety or depression or doubts or worries. You run to that and cling to that and say, God is with me through this. Where are you going to go when you're suffering? This is one of the places you need to go. God is with me. How can believers in Ukraine have peace? This, God is with them. If you don't find comfort and security and joy in the promise that God is with you, I pray you do as we look at this chapter. Or if you've heard it all your life, God is with you, God is with you, and it's just become so familiar and dull, I pray that God reawakens it and you we're open our eyes to see how amazing it is that God is with us. And if you don't know God, I pray that as we look at this chapter, God would open your eyes and cause you to believe so that by the end you'd say, God is with me too. We're going to look at three ways God is with Joseph in this chapter. Three ways God is with Joseph in this chapter. First, the Lord was with Joseph through pain. The Lord was with Joseph through pain. Second, the Lord was with Joseph by preserving him. And third, the Lord was with Joseph in prospering him. Pain, preserving, prospering. So let's look at the first one. The Lord was with Joseph through pain. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. Twice it says that Joseph was brought down. Beginning in the end, he's brought down to Egypt. Now geographically, Egypt is down from the promised land, but Joseph is not just physically going down. Everything in his life is going down. He's been ripped away from his family. And he's been taken away from his homeland. Everything he's known for the past 17 years is gone. And Joseph has gone down in status. He went from being the favored son of a rich man to being a slave. He went from great wealth to great poverty. He went from having power and influence because of his dad to having what seemed like no power and no influence. It looked like the best days of Joseph's life were behind him. And everything was just going to be downhill from here, and you can imagine how painful that would be. 
But as things seemed hopeless, immediately in verse 2, almost as a big bright light saying, hold on, don't despair. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Those words make all the difference in the world. God is with Joseph through every step down to Egypt. And then things seem to go better for a while. Joseph is a slave, but he keeps getting promoted. He's getting raised up in Potiphar's house, which is a good thing. But then he's accused of a crime he did not commit, and he's thrown into prison. The only status lower than a slave is a prisoner. So he's gone down about as far as you could go. Joseph is not just down in Egypt. He's down in a pit in Egypt. But again, as things look darkest, in verse 21, there's this bright light saying, hold on, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God was with him and showed him steadfast love, the never-ending covenant love of God for his own. Both times when things look like they aren't going to be able to get worse, it says God is with him. It's like what David says in Psalm 139. He says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God has not abandoned Joseph in the dark pain that he's walking through. And hear me, that doesn't minimize Joseph's pain. That's not minimizing the pain Joseph is going through. Joseph would not say, God is with me, I feel fine. It doesn't hurt at all. This isn't painful at all. God is with me, so it just I'm great. I have no pain, I have no sadness, nothing. No, the pain is still there, but in the pain, Joseph has hope. Because God is with him. He can suffer and be rejoicing because God is with him. Think about this for a second. Joseph in that prison cell is experiencing a far greater blessing than Pharaoh can experience in all his palace. He has a far greater blessing. It is better, it is better to have God and be in a prison cell than have the whole world without him. It's better to have God. We actually get to see an offer like that given in Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, God is talking to Moses right after the people sinned by worshiping a golden calf. And God tells Moses to bring the people into the promised land. God's going to give them the land and drive out the nations living there. It sounds great. But then God says this in verse 3. He says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God says, I'll give you this great land. Drive out the people, but you won't have me. You will have everything else you want. Land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. How do you respond to that? Moses says this in verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses says, it's better for us to be in the wilderness than to be in the promised land without God. 
It's better to have him in the wilderness than be in the promised land without him. It's better to live in these old, tattered tents with God's presence than to live in great houses without him. It's better to eat manna for the rest of our lives than to, and have God than to feast without him. God is better, and he's with us in our pain. God is with us in our pain, and he knows our pain. Just like Joseph suffered, Jesus suffered more. Just, uh, Jesus was known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Just, if, just as Joseph suffered for doing nothing wrong, Jesus suffered when he did nothing wrong, except for Jesus was perfect and sinless, unlike Joseph. Joseph suffered because of the sins of others. Jesus suffered to pay for the sins of others. God is not absent or ignorant of our pain. So brother and sister in Christ, God will not remove all your pain in this life here on earth, but he will be with you through it. He will be with you through it. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus bought those promises for you on the cross. Jesus bought those promises for us on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus, when he was going through the greatest possible pain, he did not receive God the Father's comforting presence. On the cross, Jesus received God the Father's wrath so that in our pain, we would receive only God's steadfast love. He got wrath so that we would get steadfast love. Cling to God in your He will not always take away pain in this life, but he will comfort you with his love until the day when he wipes every tear from your eye. He's going to walk you through the pain, and then he's going to take it away, whether in this life or in the one to come. So God is with Joseph through all this pain, and then we see God is with Joseph by preserving him, by preserving him. Look again at verses 7 through 10. It says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. So Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. He's a good-looking guy. The only other time those words are used in Genesis, handsome or beautiful in form and appearance, is when it's talking about Joseph's mom back in chapter 29, Rachel. She was beautiful in form and appearance. The only other time. So Joseph looks like his mom. He's handsome in form and appearance. And Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph is handsome, and she tries to get him to sin with her. And Joseph refuses many, many times. But did you notice why Joseph refuses? You notice why? There are lots of good reasons for Joseph to say no. You can think of 20, 30 good reasons why Joseph should say no here. He could lose his position would be one. I mean, he's gotten up pretty high. As far as slaves go, he's about as high as you can get. He even says in verse 9 that Potiphar and him in the house are equal. That's as high as you can get. You don't want to lose that. 
Or worse, he could lose his life if he's caught. This is a killable offense if he's caught. And he would be betraying Potiphar, who has treated him well up to this point. I would imagine they have somewhat of a friendship, as much as a friendship as a servant and master can have. You don't put somebody in charge of your whole house unless you trust them, and you probably want to like them a little bit. So they have somewhat of a relationship. I would imagine they were close. All these things are great reasons to say no. But they're not the main reason Joseph gives. In verse 9, he says, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's why he says no. He, he won't do it because he fears God. That's the main motivator. Joseph has drawn near and enjoyed the steadfast love of God, and he fears displeasing God. He's tasted and seen the goodness of intimacy with God, and he prizes that far above any sinful intimacy he can have with Potiphar's wife. It's all about God. If God was not with Joseph, he would have crumbled here. He would have crumbled here. Everything was against Joseph. He's in a pagan land where they worship pagan gods. He's a young man, probably 17 years old, with no one discipling him. What older man in Egypt is going to put his arm around Joseph and say, let me tell you about the one true God? There's nobody. There's nobody here to do that for him. Joseph doesn't get through this by his own willpower. I'm just going to gut this out and say no. It's not how he gets through. He gets through because God is with him. God is with him. And God takes hearts that love sin and makes them hate the sin they once loved. God is preserving Joseph and he's providing a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful." And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's providing a way of escape. And look how God provides escape in the next verses, verses 11 through 18. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as my master, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Joseph runs, leaving his garment behind. There's no one else in the house. None of the men in the house are there, so he just bolts. You can take my garment. I'm getting out of here. Praise God for grace to run. Praise God for grace to run. Grace to turn the TV off or shut the computer down or leave the conversation or not say the thing you thought about saying. Praise God for grace to run, to not entertain the thought for a second. You know that God helps us when we're tempted. 
He helps us when we're tempted. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is our great high priest who is tempted as we are but never sinned. He's perfect, sinless, and not only that, he helps us now when we are tempted. There is grace in Christ to overcome temptation because God is with us. But one more thing to say about this. Joseph does the right thing and it gets him thrown in prison. I'm sure you noticed that. He's punished by Potiphar for doing the right thing. Even though Potiphar's under a delusion. He doesn't think he did the right thing. But he did. God knows. And yet he's punished. It cost him. Was it worth it? Long term, we know that going to prison is how Joseph becomes second in command. So you could say long term, clearly it was worth it. Because he went from being you know, head of Potiphar's house, jail, but then second in command in all of Egypt. So long term, totally worth it. But would it have been better for Joseph in the short term if he gave in? Maybe Joseph would have kept his job if he gave in. There's no one else in the house. He's a smart guy. Probably could have gotten away with it. Maybe. Maybe he wouldn't have ended up in prison. He spent a lot of time in prison. It would have been nice to avoid all of that pain. Let's say that would have happened. Let's just speculate. Let's say if Joseph gave in, he avoids prison and he keeps his job. Would it have been better in the short term? No. Because it is better to be in an Egyptian jail than to be in prison by your sin. It's better to be in an Egyptian jail with God than to be imprisoned by your sin. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, slavery itself was a small Calamity compared with that which would have happened to young Joseph had he been enslaved by wicked passions. Happily, the Lord was with him and enabled him to overcome the tempter with the question, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yes, we need to count the cost of following Jesus. Yes, we will have trouble in this world if we follow Christ. But you are never, never, never better off by giving in to temptation, short term or long term. You're never better off. Pray that God would keep us faithful, that God would make us and keep us faithful, no matter what the cost would be. Ask God to help us to see him as far better than any momentary pleasure of sin. So we see God with Joseph in pain. We see God with Joseph preserving him. And then the clearest one for last is we see the Lord with Joseph in prospering him. This is the one that's repeated the most often. Look at how many times it talks about the Lord causing Joseph to succeed in these verses. Look at verses 2 through 6. It says, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. 
So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Everything this 17-year-old touches succeeds, and Potiphar notices that the Lord is with Joseph. And the success is so great that Potiphar decides the best thing I can do is nothing. The best thing I can do is just, Joseph, you do everything. You can just think about Potiphar sitting by himself and going like, everything I do, when I let the kid get a chance at it, he does it way better than me. And he does it better than all my other servants. So it's a little annoying, but I'm going to make him in charge of everything. He's so good at everything. God is with him. I'm not making any decisions anymore, but what I put in my mouth. If somebody asks me, what are you doing? I say, ask Joseph. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. He's making the decisions. Potiphar sees God is working through this young man. And God blesses Joseph's work again when Joseph is thrown in prison. If you skip to the end in verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Again, we see God causing Joseph to succeed. Don't credit this success to Joseph's hard work. Don't credit this success to Joseph's hard work. It doesn't say that Joseph was a harder worker than anybody in Egypt. Maybe he was. He definitely had reason to be the hardest worker in Egypt. He had hope in God. So he has all the reason in the world to be the hardest worker. But it doesn't say that. And also, you can work really, really hard and not succeed like this. You can work really hard and not succeed like this. The Lord is doing this. Moses goes out of his way to say again and again and again and again. The Lord is causing him to succeed. This isn't just Joseph being talented or administratively gifted. You can be talented and gifted and not succeed like this. The Lord is causing him to succeed. And you notice Egyptians are being blessed because they're near Joseph. Potiphar's house and his fields were blessed by God while Joseph was with him. The prison is blessed by God while Joseph is there. This is God keeping his promise that he made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. There God says to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is blessing Potiphar and the jailer, Egyptians, the nations are being blessed in Joseph, and ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. God is keeping his promise that he made to Abraham. And three times in Genesis 39, it says that God caused Joseph to succeed. Now, the only other time that Hebrew word for succeed is used in Genesis is in Genesis 24. It's mentioned four times in that chapter, three times in this one. And in Genesis 24, it's the account of Abraham sending his servant to find Isaac, his son, a wife. So Abraham sends his servant to find Isaac a wife, which is no small task. Just for a moment, what if that was your job? you got to find him a wife. You better bring back the right lady. I mean, that's pressure. I don't want that job. But that's his job. you got to go find a wife. And so he goes. And you just wonder, what is he thinking as he's going? Like, you go up to some strange girl. And there's a guy you've never met. He's really cute. Like, and he's rich. You know, like, maybe you should come marry him even though you've never 
met him, and I know arranged marriages were more common back then, so that's not as striking to us, but still. And then how do you convince this young lady's parents? You're going to go up to them and say, yeah, so your daughter's going to be well taken care of, but you're never going to see her again. And you're not going to see your grandkids unless they get in a fight and one of them runs to you for safety. But other than that, you're not going to see your grandkids either. Like, that's, you know, that's rough. I'm not signing up for that. But he goes. The servant goes and reaches a well where he knows young ladies will be coming. And he does a very wise thing. He prays. And in Genesis 24, 12, one of the four times that word success is used, it says, verse 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And God provides. The servant finds Rebekah, a relative of Abraham, and she comes back to be Isaac's wife. The impossible mission is successful. Those are the only two chapters in Genesis where that word is used, which is a fun fact, but why does that matter? What's the point? How are these stories linked? Why is Moses linking these up with this term? At least two ways. There's more, but here's two. First, in both accounts, someone is sent on a mission that is critical to the survival of God's people. In both accounts. Now, one went far more willingly. Joseph is sent by God, but he wasn't excited. His brothers are selling him into slavery. But both are sent... And the mission is critical for the survival of God's people. There will be no people of God if Isaac doesn't have a wife. The line will end there. No baby without a man and a woman. He needs a wife or the covenant line ends right there. And there will be no people of God if Joseph does not come to Egypt and save his family from the famine. The famine's coming. How are they going to be saved? God sends Joseph ahead to prepare the way and save his people. So, It's crucial. Both are sent on a mission that are crucial for the people of God to succeed. And God is the one who causes it to succeed. He's preserving his people. But second, and ultimately, it points to Jesus. God will not let Israel die off. God will bring a wife to Isaac. And Joseph will save his family. It will be successful. Why? Because God's going to send his son. He's going to send his son to save Israel. Sinners like us from the line of Judah to crush the head of the serpent like he promised in Genesis 3.15. He's going to send the Messiah to save sinners. Joseph's succeeding in Egypt and Abraham's servant succeeding in finding Isaac a bride are meant to point us to Jesus. Just like Abraham's servant, Jesus was sent on a mission to get a bride. His bride. He's sent on a mission to get his bride. And how did Jesus get his bride? By coming down, not down, down, down to Egypt, but down, down, down from heaven to earth and taking the form of a servant like Joseph. And like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed first by his own people and then by those who were not his people, accused of crimes he did not commit. And then Jesus died on the cross and was completely successful in his mission. You notice that Joseph is called successful even though he's a slave and a prisoner? That's weird. Those two don't usually go together. Slave, successful. Prisoner, successful. It's like, wow, great. Yeah, you're doing well, but you're still a slave. You're doing well, but you're still in prison. Like, how successful is that? But you see, again, this points us to Jesus. In the same way, Jesus was successful on the cross. The cross was not Jesus failing. It was him being completely successful. He was 
winning his bride. He is disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame on the cross, like it says in Colossians 2. Both Joseph and Jesus are successful in what looks like complete failure to the world. They're both successful because God is causing what looks like failure to the world to be success. A pastor named Sam Amati says it this way in his new book on Joseph, the further Joseph descends in social rank, the closer he gets to the throne. The further Joseph descends in social rank, the closer he gets to the throne. Sound like anybody else? Philippians 2, 7 through 11, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, all the way down. And it says in verse 9, Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The further down in humility Jesus went, the closer he's getting to his throne. Don't make it your aim to succeed in worldly metrics. Don't make it your aim to succeed in the eyes of the world. Succeed like Joseph. Succeed like Jesus. To the world it may look like failure, but God never fails. And he's with you. And he's with you. If God is for you, who can be against you? We'll end with this. Psalm 1 gives us this beautiful picture of the blessed man who prospers. That word prosper is the same word you'll, you'll see it in Psalm 1 as succeed in Genesis 39. You can see Joseph in this psalm and by God's grace you'll see yourself because of what Christ has done in your life and ultimately it does point to Jesus. Let me just read the first three verses. Think of Joseph. Think of Christ. Think of who God has made you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Same word, succeed, prospers. God is with you like this tree is next to streams of life-giving water so that it can't fail. So drink deep, delight yourself in God and in his word. If that's not a reality in your life, ask God to do it. Ask God to make that a reality. Make us Psalm 1, men and women. May God cause us all to be filled with hope because God is with us and we would walk with him all our days for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are with us. Thank you, Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, Father and Son, for sending your Spirit to dwell in us. We thank you, we praise you. Would you comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us for what you have ahead. Keep us, Lord, keep us faithful until you return or you call us home for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The song we're going to end with is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's all about trusting God's goodness.